0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For me, Ascension Sunday feels full of conflicting ideas. It's full of celebration and of suffering, praise and petition, glory and humility, being commissioned to get to work but being told to wait. Even the timing in our church calendar reflects this seeming contradiction. Ascension Sunday is the last Sunday Easter tide. before we get to the Feast of Pentecost. It is this liminal space between the last physical interaction with the resurrected Jesus the early believers have before the Holy Spirit comes to dwell among them and to lead them as they form the early church. This is a time for them that is full of unknown and full of waiting. In Acts 1, we see the disciples asking Jesus for a confirmation that since he had already triumphed over sin and death and rose victorious, that Israel would be restored. It's a question that makes a lot of sense from their perspective. Jesus, this is my paraphrasing here, you said that your work is finished while you were on the cross. You've come back to us from the dead like you said you would. So are you going to wrap all this up and usher in your fully realized kingdom? If the disciples were hoping for a quick yes to this question, they would have been disappointed, if not confused, about Jesus' response. So let's hear it. This is what Jesus says to them in verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus doesn't give them a clear answer on the timing, but he does make it clear that this is something they won't be getting a specific answer on. I'd like to pause here and reflect on the importance of this response. I cannot speak for any of you and your lives and your stories, but I can speak for myself when I say that there have been many times in my life where I have sought specific answers from God to problems or to situations or questions in my life and have been disappointed to not get the sort of answer that I was hoping or expecting. Sometimes that has felt like silence or a lack of response to my questions. Sometimes that has been a no when I've wanted to hear a yes. Sometimes that has been a not now or wait when I really wanted resolution now. It is not my favorite feeling to realize that I will need to wait or spend time waiting on God to get things ready and to trust that even though I don't get to see what's happening behind the scenes, that God is at work in the world just as I know that he is at work in my life. It's part of the reason why I appreciate seeing an example of this sort of unanswered question in Luke's account of the ascension because I can look to the disciples to see an example of how I can or should respond when these moments come in my life." And as we heard, Jesus does not give them the specific answer that they were hoping for, but he does remind the disciples of the promises that God has made to them that will soon be fulfilled by sending them the Holy Spirit, and he gives them a reassurance of their mission going forward. It's worth hearing verse 8 again since it encapsulates the entire premise of the book of Acts, so I will try to emphasize the words that Jesus uses that I believe he is intentionally using to assure his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Listen to those words, you will, when you will be. That's certainty, that is assurance given to them. He says this and then Jesus is lifted up in a cloud manifesting God's glory and taken out of sight and into heaven before their very eyes. The disciples spend a moment lingering and looking into the sky and honestly, who can blame them? This was not that they had imagined what happened next and it was certainly not the timing that they had envisioned seeing the resurrected lord is incredible enough and now they have seen him caught up into glory in a cloud exactly like the sort of manifested glory we see when the ark of the covenant is placed in solomon's temple in first kings eight it had to be breathtaking awe-inspiring bewildering confusing they are gently chastised then by some angels for their confusion but they are also reassured again reassurance comes up this jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven and to use our holy imaginations for just a moment imagine what that walk back into jerusalem and back to the upper room must have felt like it seems like the best thing the disciples can do is to gather together and to pray as they wait on God the Father and God the Son to send God the Holy Spirit to them. They choose the best option before them, and I believe they model for us what the best thing for us to do is when we ourselves are uncertain. They actively choose to wait on the Lord to act. They trust him to give them instructions as to when and how they are supposed to act, And they work, perhaps, on letting go of those things that they don't get to know for themselves. So it's worth asking, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? This is my definition for it. It is intentionally preparing yourself to act when God says go. It is diligent, attentive prayer and meditation on God's words and promises to us, praying for guidance, and being at peace in our waiting. It is also, however, letting go of those things that you think you need to know or you need to have resolved before you can do what God has called you to do. It's about finding a middle ground, you see, a liminal space between jumping into action before God says the timing is right because perhaps we are uncomfortable not being in control, or perhaps... We are afraid of someone other than ourselves being in control or allowing ourselves on the other extreme to stall out completely because perhaps we're afraid to fail. Maybe we're afraid of what something might be perceived to be instead of what it actually is. So it is with this understanding of what it it means to wait on the Lord Perhaps it's not really all that surprising that the rest of our passages that we heard and said together today all center around the necessity of prayer in order to remain living a life of faithfulness and in so doing they offer us a picture of unified and holy worship as a body of Christ. Psalm 68 begins with a really clear petition. And I won't go through this whole psalm because it's a big one and you need to look at it yourselves. But Psalm 68 ends with a clear, or begins with a clear petition: Let God rise up, let his enemies be scattered. In other words, God, do something. Now, being a people, born into time on this side of the cross, as we have been, we have the benefit of knowing that God is triumphant over sin and death and is and has and always will be consistently faithful to his people. We have the benefit of knowing that with certainty. So we can pray the words of this psalm with complete confidence in God's ability and his willingness to act on our behalf. We also can appreciate another layer to the psalm as it depicts God as being the one who rides upon the clouds and it's not just a picture of someone who is powerful enough to have control over the elements or the weather or anything else but we get to also see another layer of this being a prefiguring image of Christ and him ascending into heaven these truths should lead us to praise we can still praise even if we are uncertain about where we find ourselves St. Peter advises some of the Gentile members of his early church on how to live appropriately when encountering some of the challenges of living in a world that stands in opposition to God. He tells them to not be surprised with the difficulties or trials that come their way. In fact, they should expect them when considering the path and the harsh persecution of Jesus whom they follow. Peter's advice seems to go nicely with what I believe is the example set up before us in Scripture of people who have suffered much, although they retained their righteous standing, people like Job and Jesus. Peter says this in chapter five, verses six through nine: "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because He cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. No matter what the challenges or hardships are in our lives, this is sound advice and something that we can all benefit from. If we remain obedient to God, submissive to him, and I have to pause and say, I understand what submissive can mean like in our world today, and it's only a negative context, but perhaps the better way of understanding submission here is essentially letting God be God and not trying to take that role on for ourselves. Submission, holy obedience to the Lord, if we do that, then we can trust that he will take care of us and he will protect us. We also are told to actively cast all of our anxiety on God, which is, again, not just good advice, but it is crucial to our well-being. In times of great upheaval, change, distress, fear, And if this is sounding familiar, it should, because I would argue we are finding ourselves in very uncertain times right now. We are not meant to hold on to our anxieties and fears and manage them without God's help. He's the one who's able to deal with it all. We as the body of Christ are also meant to act as support for one another. The feeling of isolation that so many of us are feeling only heightens our suffering and exacerbates our fears. Just stick with that for a moment. The feeling of isolation we all experience now only heightens our sufferings and exacerbates our fears, and that is because we were not meant to do this life alone. This is why Peter implores us to resist our adversary, the devil, who delights in our distress. How can we stand firm in our faith? What does it look like to faithfully live in this liminal space of not yet and unknown and suffering? Well, I would say it looks a lot like waiting on the Lord to act, like the apostles did in the upper room. It's in recognizing where we are at this point in time and identifying this as being a season where God has to work on our behalf and we have to be still. It's choosing to surrender to God and to be obedient to him. It's choosing to ground ourselves in God's love for us and in our love for one another. It's choosing to turn to God and to ask for help when we need it. And it's choosing to hold on to hope and reject despair by meditating on God's word and his promises to us. It's choosing to attentively wait for God to act and being ready to get to work when he prompts us. This is how we remain sober and steadfast and hopeful and joyful in the midst of all the myriad of unknowns that we are faced with in our lives today. And we trust that God is working on our behalf and working for the good of his whole creation to set things right, even now, even now. Can we say that without a shred of doubt at this moment? I don't know if I could. I probably need to flex some more spiritual muscles in meditating on the things that I am exhorting us all to do today. Even now, God works on behalf of the good of his whole creation and his whole world, and he works in my life and yours even now. Remember that this is the triumphant Lord that we are talking about. We are still in Eastertide. This is the resurrected Jesus Christ, whom we remember today as he ascended into heaven and as St. Peter says, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is not something that will happen. This has happened. This is our reality. The Lord reigns. And this is glory beyond comprehension, love beyond measure. This Lord, our Lord, is praying for us too, as we see in his high priestly prayer that we heard today. He's praying for us too, that we may not lose heart or stumble as he leads us into the days that are to come. So let us trust his promises that even now the Lord is with us and he is for us and he is at work. And let us anticipate with joy the goodness that is yet to come. Amen.